Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the 4TU Ethics podcast series on the ethical challenges of societal responses to COVID-19. The coronavirus pandemic gave rise to global and local challenges which have been met with the different measures, some globally imposed, such as social distancing, while others depend on local policy making, such as developing tracking apps. All these measures, whether social or technological, require ethical reflection and public debate, particularly during a crisis like this. Whenever divergent opinions are voiced, reliable information and ethical evaluation of the various responses to the crisis are crucial. However, in public debates, the technical expertise receives more attention than the ethical expertise. Ultimately, the corona response measures involve normative issues about how we would like to live as a democratic society, choosing between competing values and norms. These choices need to be made explicit and addressed publicly. In this series, we ask philosophers of technology from the 4TU Ethics Department to help us reflect on how the pandemic challenges social practices and institutions. In particular, can philosophical reflection give us a way of understanding and responding to these new challenges? But before we start the interview with our guests, some additional information for you. Since we are in the middle of the second infection wave during this recording, none of the participants of this episode met in person. The recording took place from their homes and with microphones they had available. At some point you will hear chanting and singing in the background, because at the time of the recording a couple of demonstrators gathered right outside. I guess you can call it ambient atmosphere. But now, without further ado, lean back and enjoy this episode of Ethical Challenges of Societal Responses to COVID-19. I hope you gain valuable insights and new perspectives on the challenges this pandemic presents to us, not only medically, but as a society and from a philosophical point of view. Hello, everyone. My name is Lavinia Marin, and I will be your host for today's conversation. I'm joined today by two philosophers of technology from the Delft Technical University in the Netherlands. Um, our first guest is Jana van Grunswen, assistant professor at the ethics and philosophy section at the University of Delft. Her background is in ethics and embodied, embedded, extended and inactive cognition, the so-called 4E cognition. Currently, her research focuses on the link between 4E cognition, our ethical experience of other people and developments in ICT and robotics. Hello, Jana, and thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. And our second guest is Olia Kudina, Assistant Professor at the Ethics and Philosophy section, Theo Delft. Olia's research interests span across the intersection of design and ethics of technology, bioethics, AI ethics, media studies, and empirically oriented philosophy. She is currently involved in Professor Ivo van der Poel's project on value change, where she explores the evolving relation between values and technology with the prism of pragmatism and empirical philosophy. Hello, Olia, and thank you for joining us. Hello, Lavinia, and uh, thank you for having me. Okay, I will start with a general question for both of you. What do you think is the biggest philosophical challenge of the corona pandemic? Olia? Uh, yeah, thanks, Lavinia. I think if I were to approach this question, I'd say that we have at the new heightened level, the reintroduction of attention between the value of the individual and collective in society, in liberal society, in societies with 
different uh, values play at stake with more uh, collective-oriented societies versus more uh, individually-oriented societies. And we can see that manifestation um, really well in when countries had different initiatives to develop contact tracing apps, digital apps. And that's something I will be talking on today. So I thought that would be a good example of how I see that conflict and tension between individual and collective play out en masse and the consequences that it can translate to. Okay, so individual and collective tensions. And what about you, Jana? What do you think is the biggest philosophical challenge of the corona pandemic? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so I think Olya did a really nice job actually pinpointing one sort of overarching main philosophical takeaway. Um, at the same time, it's of course such a massive um, event that it's hard to sort of pinpoint one one takeaway. So I think, of course, we all approach this question as philosophers from our own niche area. Um, so for me, what I think about a lot in my work is the way in which um, our our skills, our habits, and our concerns shape our perceptual experience of the world. And I think the pandemic has um, sort of disrupted the 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 familiarity that we have with our perceptual environment, which is something um, I can talk about a little bit more. So for me, um, that's that's the lens through which I've been been looking at the pandemic. And relatedly, um, but I'm not sure if our conversation goes that way. Um, I think the pandemic reveals sort of the limits of of a neoliberalist individualist notion of of human agency. So we have a, a various uh, varied topics here today. Um, I want to ask, uh, both of you wrote academic articles about the pandemic and its challenges, in which you tackle some societal challenges and the technological responses that followed this. And while you discuss different technologies, I want to start first by capturing your main point. And I will start with Jana. You published a paper titled Perceptual Breakdown During a Global Pandemic, Introducing Phenomenological Insights for Digital Mental Health Purposes uh, in the journal Ethics and Information Technology. And I wanted to ask you, what is the main idea in your paper? Yes, thank you. So, um, as you already mentioned, I, I work primarily from the 4E cognition perspective. Um, and when the pandemic started, I, I just, I, I think I myself, so this is like very anecdotal, of course, but I myself and, and people around me were experiencing a kind of sense of alienation and, and exhaustion that was a little bit hard to pinpoint. And as I started thinking a little bit about my own research, it's it dawned on me that a helpful way to think about my own experience and, and, and some of the people around me is that we, so the 4E approach to perceptual experience is that how we perceive our environment um, is in terms of the possibilities of action that it affords us as living beings who have a certain set of skills and habits, right? So if I'm in a rush to get home, um, and I have the ability or the skill to open doors and press buttons, I will immediately perceive my front door to the building as a, and the, the handle of my front door as affording to be grabbed, the 
buttons in my elevator as affording to be pushed. And I, I do this in a kind of habitual, effortless way. I, I don't have to think about it. And, and, and that's great because as a result, I can spend my, right, my, my, my active attention, my, my, my explicit reflective thoughts on, on topics that matter a lot more than pressing elevator buttons. But the pandemic has, has really disrupted the ability to respond to much of our practical environment in this effortless way, right? So we're constantly second guessing, oh, am I going to open the door with, um, right? I'm going to try to push it open with my, my elbow. Am I going to uh, open it with my hand and disinfect my hands right away afterwards? And, right? So there's, there, is, there are all these really small subtle and maybe seemingly innocuous ways that our effortless way of perceiving and responding to our environment have been disrupted or, or I, I refer to it as, as there being a kind of breakdown in perceptual world familiarity. Um, and, and, and that was the main um, sort of phenomenon that I focused on in the paper that you just mentioned. And then thinking about some of the psychological and normative implications for that and and how technology might um, be of some service here. Okay, so you just explained this uh, loss of perceptual world familiarity as in a way, as I understand it, is that we, we suddenly have this mental chatter in the background of our minds. We're thinking about things we didn't use to think before. And could you explain? So yes, I, a mental chatter is one way to put it. But I, I think in many ways it doesn't even rise to the level of of explicit mental awareness. It's just that we constantly feel these minor disruptions in our everyday flow, right? So of course, as human beings, we're you know we're really good at at reflecting on our environment and and formulating complicated thoughts. But but we also are situated in an environment at, at a different kind of register or level, right? We we build up habits that allow us to sort of, yeah, be at home in the world and 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 respond to different aspects of our environment without having to think about it, right? We 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 take up an appropriate distance from others because we've learned and built up throughout our lives, what that appropriate distance feels like. We don't have to think about that, but now we do. So, so yes, the, um, I think mental chatter is, is one way to get at it. Um, but I, I try to cash it out more in terms of the experience of there being a kind of, um, there's almost a, we experience a kind of practical incompatibility in our everyday lives, right? So I still see my door handle as affording to be grabbed effortlessly, but at the same time, I'm also now having to question if I can respond to that call to just effortlessly grab it. I see. So then, if I may, the way I understand it is that, you know, we're not at home anymore in the world because in this pandemic world. That's a nice way to put it. Yes, thank you. Now I want to move to Olya's um, contribution. Olya, you wrote a paper forthcoming about contact tracing apps in which you criticized the societal debate focused exclusively on issues about privacy. Could you explain the main idea from your paper? Yeah, thanks, Lavinia. It's uh, also something that I've just, you know, 
I've just been observing a lot, like when the lockdown started around March and gradually proceeded into the summer, how different countries in the world independently uh, started to struggle with these um, digital efforts of how to manage the pandemic. And what I was observing is that there was a lot of moral uncertainty going on globally anyway, right? When people were really um, balancing on a daily basis these concerns about their individual values, rights, what's important to them, but also what they need with this more collective perspective. And I felt like a lot of it came from this, um, the duality debate that was featuring globally, but also nationally on pitting privacy concerns with the concerns for uh, solidarity with each other, which meant possibly going over one's values and rights, for instance, individual liberties and rights such as privacy. And uh, it was happening amid all of this concern that people were witnessing these new social norms on the one hand, how they should wear masks in public, should they not. Um, some countries really emphasized keeping the one and a half meter distance while others really didn't get that much prevalence to it. But we all, in one way or another, were trying to navigate what it means to be social in the responsible way in this new condition of pandemics. But amid all of these different new and sometimes contradicting social measures, there was very often this one uh, social message coming from the you know, political leaders and different technical organizations that technology can help us manage this uncertainty in a better way, in a more efficient way, in a more productive way. And amid all of this, these COVID-19 tracking apps, they really were framed as one of the measures to help manage the pandemic, right? And so basically these track and trace apps were um, a sort of digital initiative to correlate the movement of people who have the COVID-19 cases that they get from the public health organizations and to notify people when they come in proximity with the carriers in an effect to like in an effort to try to isolate people earlier and uh, to help them get testing. And in that way also track and notify other people for a more efficient management of a pandemic that is currently, or at least at the, at the moment of March 2020, was being done mostly manually. And what was fascinating to me is that there was a large number of these independent app initiatives, and they were really different from each other, starting from the technical means of how they were tracking the population, how they were not to find people about them, but also regarding the degree of how it was enforced in different countries. And what was actually interesting to me that regardless of all of these differences at the technical level and level of enforcement and social acceptance, um, the media messages that accompanied the introduction of these apps globally, they very often uh, coincided in how they tracked and how they framed these uh, COVID-19 tracking apps. And that was either as the marriage of what I call government and corporate mass surveillance that will do away completely with the citizens' privacy, or alternatively, as the beacon of solidarity that will help to strengthen the collective response to the pandemic. And I was thinking to myself, why this duality? I mean, I think both of these concerns are very valid and it's very important not to minimize them. But does pitting them against each other help us to have a more coherent and encompassing message? And I didn't think it was. And that's basically something that prompted me to write the paper where I wanted to explore a possibility where such a duality simply need not take place. When we have attention to the accompanying social and ethical concerns that at the same time help to help us to bridge this sort of perceived gap between privacy and solidarity. And in my attempt to do that, 
I wanted to reframe the COVID-19 tracking apps from being neither a sort of messiah or a destroyer of pandemic management, but as a localized and complex socio-technical system that helps to shape and qualify the company ethical concerns that go along with its introduction. So that's basically the, you know, the motivation for my paper and something that I wanted to bring across as, for instance, what is at stake when we focus so much on privacy, what happens to other ethical concerns, and um, what happens when we focus so much on an individual take, like that it's about one user, and about one user's, for instance, right to data protection and control over their information. And perhaps how can specific social and cultural environments help to give shape to certain ethical concerns that materialize with the introduction of these apps? And I thought that the socio-technical system perspective is something that can help us to have a deeper insight into all of this. So if I understand from your uh, answer is that if we focus only on the privacy issue of these apps or only on the solidarity, we're missing the complexity of the interplay and interrelation between individual and society. And we're missing the bigger picture here. Correct. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. Right, because you mentioned that these apps are different technically, but the mass media discourse was equally around similar around the world. And I wanted to ask you, since we are all based in the Netherlands, uh, can you explain to us about the Dutch response to this, uh, to this uh, pandemic through technology? And I mean here the Dutch Corona Melder app. What, what, what is it about it and what are the lessons learned from this app? So maybe uh, just it's good to say a few words from the beginning of what is the Dutch Corona Melder app, right? So it's um, it's an example of um, independent initiative from the Dutch government, which combines also corporate efforts from Google, Apple API, which basically uh, what it does is that it couples Bluetooth signal from the phones with the GPS data from the phone owners that is not used in any other way than other to triangulate the data from Bluetooth signals. For instance, um, such that the location of uh, the user's phone and the timestamp data, they're not stored and they're not presented to the user. So they cannot be given to other parties either. And um, with the help of this Google Apple, uh, Google Apple application, what the phone does is um, it generates and shares certain tokens and they're very randomly uh, random identifiers. Um, so it sends out these signals every 15 minutes which represent a string of random numbers that do not link to the user's identity or to their phone, and they do not collect any additional information. So in a way, it's really privacy sensitive. But what the phones do with those beacons is that they broadcast and exchange them and store them locally on the phone for two weeks. This is helpful to identify when a certain person is a carrier of COVID-19 because um, uh, basically when the person is diagnosed and they are in interaction with the uh, local health services, um, they're prompted to share this information uh, separately and voluntarily with this Corona Melder app. So it's not an enforcement, it's an invitation uh, and a call for solidarity with other citizens in the country. So for instance, if a person indicates their carrier status in the app, the tracking system uh, on the phone will correlate these Bluetooth numbers from this phone of the device with those that have been stored on this phone for 14 days previously and in a way notify people who have those other tokens that they have been in a proximity with a carrier within these last two weeks. 
Um, and what happens to the user themselves is that they're notified to in a recommendation to isolate themselves at home and to go have a test to minimize the risk of spreading the virus. But at the same time, like I said, this, this allows people to voluntarily provide their carrier status, and it is in a very anonymized way that I would say promotes both this individual and collective responsibility by, on the one hand, emphasizing how much control and influence a single individual has on this managing of the public health and safety concern, and that it's not just about oneself, but it's also about quite a lot of other people um, in the country. That being Can said... I Yep, no, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm just listening with a lot of interest to what you're saying, and I don't want to disrupt your flow. I was just really curious, do we have any sense yet of the work that the app is actually doing in, in confronting the virus? So, I, I mean, I, I, have, I, I downloaded the app, um, and I know quite a few people who have, and I don't think any, any of us have ever had a notification uh, which, of course, can be just a really nice, reassuring thing, possibly. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, since you're obviously deeply embedded in this um, in this issue and probably following it a lot better than, than I am, do you know, do you, like, is it is it contributing positively to the, um, yeah, the battling of the pandemic in, in, in the Netherlands? Um, that's a good question, Jana. I don't think so. In fact, in fact, I don't think there's a, a lot of publicly available data on it yet. I just checked yeah. when you were asking the question, and as of 1st of September, the app was downloaded more than 1 million times. It says on Google mm. App Store, 1 plus million times, which, of course, is an indication, but it doesn't tell us anything about people actually actively use the app. So that's yeah. another interesting disconnect between the numbers here. Um, I can tell you one thing, and that's something that I was touching on in the paper, that uh, the app has been in use only for a very limited amount of time, since uh, mid-October, mid if I'm right here. And uh, I can give you an example when, for instance, in September and October, I was um, helping to teach a class on the ethics of medical technologies. And one of the cases we were analyzing is the corona tracking initiatives. And in September and October, when one question I was asking to most of my students was whether you're aware that there is an ongoing uh, COVID-19 tracking initiative digitally in the Netherlands. And most of the people either didn't know about it or had heard something about it in the summer. But yet, as of like August, September, they thought, oh, you know, the stream of media messages died down. So they probably killed that initiative. Whereas I knew for certain that uh, it was not receiving much media attention because of the political discussions that were ongoing in the Dutch parliament about how to adjust the law to fit the app in the society, you know, without any legal collisions. So I witnessed this kind of complete lack of awareness, to be honest, or almost near complete lack of awareness of people in the country that was experiencing a very second, well, very serious uh, increasing rate of COVID cases in late September, early October that led to increased social measures and uh, increased socioeconomical measures in the country that restricted a lot more activities that people had. And yet I knew that this app was basically technologically developed uh, almost at the end of July, beginning of August, let's say, and it was sitting on the shelf for about two and a half, three months uh, without, you know, any... <laughs> any kind of trials. Now, that being said, also, there were trials going on in a few regions in the Netherlands as a trial version to see how people would react to that and implement, but they didn't release a lot of statistics on how effective it was in managing the pandemic. 
And I think also it's one of the key things that I always want to, well, at least how I see myself, the introduction of such apps, but specifically also in the Netherlands, it's never the measure, but it's always a complementary measure to all of those rules of social distancing, wearing the masks and reducing the travel that we're doing, you know, that, that we have already had since March. So that's something, you know, that I was like, that really stood out to me when I was giving this class and I was discussing all of these app initiatives globally and in the Netherlands with a student. And it struck me that they are one of the most expert people, I think, in the country yeah. about all these different digital and medical technologies. And uh, they were completely yeah, unaware. They really, didn't, they really didn't know about it. And that's something that I also touch upon in the paper. Yeah. And that when we... You know, I feel that there's been so much focus on the technological correctness of the app in the sense of its functionality, but also in its, you know, data protection enhanced features that we've been missing a larger picture in terms that that app also would need some kind of a foresight from government on how it's going to be embedded in the legal ecosystem in the country. And of course, how it's going to be embedded in the social ecosystem in the country. What would be the cultural response? How to, you know, promote it such that it means also certain social messages within the country, I think, in the Dutch population, but also that does not present an undue inducement to install and use the app, that it wouldn't trump people and kind of over-motivate them um, against their better judgment. So there are a lot of conflicting things going on, and uh, it was striking to me when I was talking about it with the students just this September and early October. Yeah, this is very interesting, especially since you were talking with the engineering students who should be aware of such apps. Um, but I wanted to follow up on this question, Olya, and uh, ask you, the way you put it is that if we download this app we are, and using it, we are showing our solidarity with others. Mm -hmm. Could it be possible that, in a way, some people might say, look, but I, I have the app, so then I don't need to do the other measures. Is this, is this a real danger? Absolutely. And it's one of the very dominant social concerns that the app is used as this technological fix idea to a very complex social cultural problem that needs an address from not just epidemiological institutions, but as we see also economically and socially supporting people, supporting entrepreneurs. And the app can give this sort of blank, you know, as a sort of like blank pass for free movement in society. Hey, I have, you know, I have an app and if, if I'm notified, then I will isolate or something like that. That is definitely one of the worries. And um, I think this is why it's so much more important how it's being promoted uh, and how it's being framed in society, that it's not the measure, but it will work only when it is accompanied by the existing social measures that I feel maybe we're giving less emphasis these days as wearing masks in public places and uh, having a one and a half meter distance and such. So it's only in combination with uh, the existing social measures that I think app can only help to foster them and perhaps even, in, well, indeed, help to manage it in a more efficient way. Okay, so um, Jana, if we pick up from this discussion on uh, solidarity and individual choice, uh, from your um, embodied and active perspective, how should we pose this question of individual choice and responsibility in specifically a Dutch context? Yeah, thank you, Lavinia, for your question. Uh, so I, I don't have a worked out view of what um, the right way to think about personal responsibility is in this context, but what I do 
worry about is that, so in the Netherlands, and this has changed recently, of course, with Rutte, even uh, Prime Minister uh, Mark Rutte, kind of backtracking a little bit and acknowledging that his his um, individual responsibility oriented discourse has you know has essentially failed um, but yeah I think that um, from 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 my view of 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 how our our lives as agents work and that much of of how we act is is motivated by how we perceive the world and 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 where how we perceive the world is 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 textured by the the skills and habits that we build up over over our lifetime um, much of what we do as agents unfolds at at a at a more habitual level um, and of course the the the, the focus on on right tackling the, the coronavirus by um, by emphasizing people's individual responsibility and and right the uh, the 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 necessity to to follow rules and and to act with the right intentions this 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 to me is is sort of ignoring um other aspects of human agency that that will will motivate how we act right so i think and here again this is anecdotal but i i think that a lot of people with really really good intentions who want to take um, social distancing measures seriously, uh, who are committed to it at a reflective level and who endorse these rules will still find themselves, and, and, and myself included, right? We've, we've just built up so many habits of, of how we relate to other people and how we re- relate to our perceptual environment. So, right, there's, there's a kind of... Um, yeah, in 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 one-on-one personal interaction, you, you there's a kind of um, bodily tension almost that you that you want to resolve, even if it's not consciously. When you're when you're talking to someone and you're standing too far away from them, right? You just feel your bodies moving closer, <laughs> and this is this is not a, a matter of having the wrong intentions or not being uh, responsible as an individual. Right? It's it, it's how we're built as agents. So I, um, yeah, I, I I think it's I think the language of individual responsibility it it's not unimportant, but it only gets us so far. And if you don't complement it with a richer account of of how humans act and 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 what motivates them to act, yeah, your 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 measures are going to fall flat, and and that's exactly what we've seen. So that's very interesting, Diana, because what you're saying is that nobody has bad intentions, but our bodies get us close to each other. Well, okay, so I'm not saying nobody has bad intentions. I think there are plenty of people who don't care. But I think there are also a lot of people who do care um, and who still, um, right? Yeah, there's just more to to being a, a, a human agent and to being a responsible human agent than than the ability to act on explicit rules. And, and if we ignore the, the, the force that our habits have on how we comport ourselves towards the world and towards others, you're just gonna, yeah, your, 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 your approach to battling the COVID-19 pandemic is grounded in a kind of 
ideology of what you think a, a human agent is like, and, and it's not grounded in a more realistic view. That's, that's my sense. Can I pitch something on that? Because I think this is where Yana's and my narrative really connect. And I yeah, think I agree. There's this case of when we focus so much on individual privacy, we're missing also the social dimension of what, you know, of privacy and its value for people as related and socially embedded individuals. And there was a really interesting case from South Korea where uh, regardless of the anonymization and data masking efforts, um, multiple websites online, they were, um, you know, putting together those anonymized cases of COVID-19 with a detailed movement history of the carriers, like at what time, at which place this anonymized person was. So what happened was regardless of these efforts, people in social media, um, you know, got together to triangulate the data points and actually identify those carriers. And in this way, regardless of this anonymization efforts, privacy really transcends the individual dimensions, but actually goes on to touch on the lives of people that may be, you know, a little bit connected to those carriers. For instance, um, in, in specifically in the reports that I saw from South Korea, this resulted to cases of public shaming, bullying and ostracizing, basically, of anyone with any relation to the carrier. It could be neighbors, the, there were family members, yeah. but also co-workers, even a little bit associated. So it's not just, uh, you know, a privacy of an individual. But technology in this case helps to shape privacy as not just an individual matter, but as intrinsically connected with the privacy of others, regardless of the anonymization attempts. And people really try to navigate the space, not just from an individual standpoint, but of collective implications when it's not considered in a narrow way as control of only one person's in, you know, information. And we also have to consider the collective dimension here, collective responsibility for public health that may, uh, you know, in, in certain countries outweigh individual concerns, but certain hierarchical social structures in different cultures, they can facilitate that, you know, interaction. And I think it's very important to see the bigger picture also in how we frame these technologies and helping to manage the pandemic, because the overly focus on individual, you know, also the societal dimension of these values. And I think we could really develop better technologies by you know extending how we look at them yeah i i fully agree i mean both of us are obviously not endorsing the idea of a technological fix but i think yeah. the 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 putting the onus on the individual and 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 having that as the core of your your strategy as a as a government really ignores how deeply human action uh, and human motivation is is shaped by both the social and material environment so so yeah um i mean yeah don't get me started about mask wearing and what a simple <laughs> simple partial fix that that would have been to start that earlier in the netherlands but yeah i uh I, I, I thank you for your, uh, for your comment, Olia. I think that is exactly where our projects connect. Uh, 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 taking up a more comprehensive perspective that looks at the social and the technical uh, as key features for, yeah, understanding how the, how the pandemic could have been approached in a better way, perhaps. Yeah. Guys, I have a side question. So I have this question for Olya next. Um, after Yana's about the 
how to avoid pitting privacy against solidarity. Mm-hmm. But I think Olya already answered it. Olya, do you want? Can I? No, I also it? feel a little bit bad that I interrupted Diana, but I felt it really flows in. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I think that's great. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think that that I think that's nice. Mm-hmm. Then it's actually kind of a conversation. <laughs> uh, Olya, thank you for these uh, reflections on um, the um, the social and the individual values being pitted against each other. But I wanted to ask you about a third actor, which may come into play here, and this is corporations and corporate interests. What do you think of this? I'm really happy that you're, you know, pointing attention to that, because I think regardless of this developmental transparency that in the Netherlands and in many other countries, they have in pairing up with these large corporations to provide critical infrastructure for the functioning of contact tracing apps, I do think that the larger issue stands. Uh, why weren't there a collective national response in sort of anticipation of such pandemic issues? It just was, to my idea, it, it presented as insufficient and required pairing up with existing corporate uh, infrastructures. So I think it's very important to see that the companies such as Google and Apple, they share access to their operating systems that allows governments and private initiatives to develop their own contact tracing apps in sort of open and transparent manner. But at the same time, the primary infrastructural element of the app, it remains closed behind the proprietary code. The governments do not have access to that, so we don't know what's happening there. But another thing that I'd like to draw attention, and it's also echoing the work of Tamar Sharon in the area on this matter, is the longer term concerns. Uh, there's a big corporate influence in how we shape the critical public health concerns and also the national response to these situations. And I think by focusing so much on privacy, we're also missing out uh, perhaps larger societal issues and societal goods that may be at stake, not maybe short term, but mid to long term, when governments are relying on the help of corporations for these efforts of, you know, mitigating and managing the pandemic. And I think it's something that also deserves a big attention on, you know, a larger level. I see. So in a way, corporations are contributing to shaping these public goods in an indirect way that has not been discussed. Yes, and it's about thinking of what kind of contract we're entering when we're agreeing to the certain terms and conditions on such a large level um, as a country. Because while it may provide immediate response and alleviate immediate concerns, we are not sure how this helps to shape the whole discourse and the direction in which public health is being developed as a public matter, public matter of concern by, you know, the undue influence from corporate initiatives. Uh, Thank you, Olya. But you mentioned, okay, you mentioned society, corporations, but you also mentioned the cultural context, which is different in the Korean society from, let's say, the Dutch one. And I want to ask you, how can uh, cultural awareness contribute to the responsible design of technology? And first of all, what is the responsible design of technology? Well, I, was, I think the two points that you say are connected. And unfortunately, there is no black and white definitive response. Otherwise, I think we would have already been using such uh, tools. But I think one of the obvious ways in which to increase this more uh, design from this socio-technical perspective uh, system that I was socio-technical system perspective that I was referring to earlier would be to think along not just the line of technology but uh, along the axis of also institutional embedding and socio-cultural embedding and that might also mean that you need to include diverse stakeholders in developing these apps include as many different perspectives and um, I don't know different viewpoints regarding the age ethnicity 
um, profession or whatnot in specific cultural settings to help make the app relatable to as many different members of society as you can. While at the same time, that would help to also balance out different perspectives on, let's say, privacy as individual and social value among others. And I think another good um, outcome that may come out of these diverse stakeholder representations in the design of these apps would be uh, thinking in advance how to avoid coercion um, of using this app, how to avoid framing it as a, you know, in, as a very, like, as a societal must, and at the same time, ousting certain members of society that would not feel comfortable with using the app, how um, not to make it um, coercive, not in a direct, but actually also an indirect way by conditioning the use of certain public services and access to public places, for instance, with a condition of only installing this app. So I think um, a responsible way would be to, among other things, uh, not just to think about the technological component, but also of the sociocultural and the institutional dimensions where this app would be embedded. And at the same time, that would help to bring out certain ethical, normative and existential concerns that cut across all of these technological, sociocultural and institutional dimensions. And in that way, I think we could... Uh, with the benefit of foresight, try to think of how this technology could be adopted in a certain society and uh, yeah, make it more sort of relatable, I'd say, to uh, different members of society. Thank you. Um, what I hear you both say as philosophers is that the language you've been using to discuss the pandemic and its responses has been quite simplistic. They're using dichotomies and splitting society into certain categories. And beyond this, I want to ask uh, both of you, but I'm starting with Jana. What can we learn from this experience of the pandemic as a society? Yeah, I think there are, there are obviously a lot of things that we as a society can, can learn from the pandemic. Um, and, I, and I'm really hoping we will. I, I think a part of me is a little bit pessimistic, but... Um, Harkening it back a little bit to my own research and what I've been thinking about the so as I you know as I've been discussing what the pandemic has really brought out for me is um, it's the normative significance or the, the the importance for for just well-being and 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 flourishing as an individual in your daily functioning the the importance of of not experiencing a continual breakdown in your world of perceptual familiarity. Um, and I think, so my wager is that a lot of people are experiencing this now for the first time, right? We, we this, this kind of fatigue that stems from constantly self-monitoring our, our, our actions, second guessing, can I stand this close to someone? Oh, I want to give the person I, my friend who I ran into on the street a hug, but oh no, I shouldn't. Or, you know, should I be wiping down my groceries or not? Just these constant little disruptions in our, in our uh, just daily absorption in our environment. Um, to me, the pandemic has revealed how incredibly important this is and while this is um, a kind of, right, this breakdown in, in um, perceptual world familiarity is, is now something we're experiencing on a mass global scale, it's actually also something that lots of people 
have already been experiencing in the pre-pandemic world, right? So um, the the ability to just be mindlessly absorbed in your your environment, to not have to self-monitor, to not have to uh, right second guess your responses to the world, to not be able to um, you, you know just effortlessly respond to the practical possibilities of your environment. The, these are things that that it basically perceptual world familiarity is not an evenly distributed phenomenon. There are lots of different people and cohorts who've, who've already sort of been excluded from this. Um, and so, right, in, in, in my uh, paper, I, I, I focus on, on how different people with different disabilities, right, um, have been prevented from sort of inhabiting the world in the same kind of effortless way um, that, that many of us were able to do in the pre-pandemic world. Uh, and so I suppose if there's any kind of takeaway that I that I would hope we as a society um, learn from from this pandemic is that um, right that that there is a kind of privilege and and luxury, but one that's really important for well-being to be mindlessly <laughs> absorbed in your environment, and that this has not been evenly distributed, and that we have to think of ways to make the the, the everyday perceptual world uh, more inclusive. Olya, yeah, I have the same question for you. What can we learn from this experience of a pandemic as a society? Well, I think I'd like to um, tag along with the point that Jana was just mentioning about this uh, divide or rather reintroducing the divide or making us aware of certain divides and not a really cohesive nature of uh, interactions that we live in. For instance, if I continue with these digital contact tracing apps, not everybody has a cell phone. And not just that, some people find it simply inconvenient to carry a cell phone with a GPS turned on for you all the time. Not all cell phones are equal, and some of them have a better battery capacity than others, because you need the high battery capacity to have the GPS cycle always on. Not for not not for everyone, it is at all feasible to even carry one at all times, even if they know it is so that it really shows how much we're trying to, you know, tie this collective response to a pandemic and navigate this moral uncertainty, turning to digital technologies. But that makes me also see the kind of divisions that we may have in society that, uh, like Lavinia, you were also saying, like, I might not have been aware of. And uh, it's interesting for me to see how different societies try to navigate those uh, divisions or, you know, the, the new kind of, the divides that perhaps we've always had that come up in types of this pandemic and the digital solutions that we try to uh, manage it with. For instance, um, in Singapore, uh, recognizing this factor of not everybody wanting to have a cell phone and not everybody having a cell phone, the government provides... Um, Travelers from abroad and social groups without smartphones or those who find it inconvenient to carry one with wearable uh, Bluetooth tokens that do not connect to GPS or internet connection, but would enable that digital um, tracking and inclusion in this digital trace and track initiative in the country without the necessity of a cell phone. But I think there are a lot of other campaigns that may be far less, you know, low, low tech, I'd say far more low tech 
And I think something that focuses also on the collective aspect of inclusion, and it's something that I have observed also here in the Netherlands. For instance, there were social campaigns happening in the libraries while we still could see each other in the libraries and not currently, uh, or certain care facilities to help provide information about the pandemic and the digital initiatives, address any questions on how to contribute to this contact tracing digitally and non-digitally. And these days I see that that can happen not just uh, in absence of, well, the possibility to meet physically in libraries or cafes, these uh, social awareness campaigns are happening also online on spaces like Skype and Zoom. So I really like how we also reintroduce the need for the social connect seemingly in the time of disconnect. And uh, I like, you know, it kind of brings me back some kind of um, trust and hope uh, in that we will also manage the situation and navigate it, uh, I hope, sooner rather than later, together. Uh, and picking up on this, you both talked about solidarity. And I want to ask you, how should solidarity look after the pandemic? Jana? Oh, man. <laughs> Um, <laughs> can I pass? <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I, I, I didn't see this one. I this I, I, uh, I didn't see this one coming, but I should have, I guess. Yeah, if you if you want to jump after Olya's answer, you can do it naturally. Okay. So picking up on this, Olya, how how should solidarity look after the pandemic? Solidarity for me, at least, you know, I can't. And maybe I don't know an exact answer of, uh, you know, how it should be, but I take it from the opposite of how I think it should not be. And it should not be uh, framed in a way of this opposition and duality with, for instance, individual liberties or in this case, privacy. Because what the pandemic has taught me personally is that focusing predominantly on privacy, however important, it does reduce the overall complexity of these technologies and digital initiatives to only this technological component suggesting that if only we achieve an optimal data protection regimen, management standards, you know, this would ensure the successful use of the app when an individual is concerned, but not from a societal perspective. But personally, I am doubtful uh, whether this superiority of technical features could ever be achieved. And even if it is achieved, whether it can address the larger issue of trust, of, of generating trust of people in using the app when we're navigating individually and collectively this moral uncertainty that the pandemic you know, generates. But on the other hand, if we sort of overemphasize the call to solidarity, at the same time implying that it will cost you individual liberties such as privacy, this also suggests that you know, achieving collective response to the pandemic is possible only when there is this large trade-off to one's liberties, and also at the cost of inducing blame onto those who may have other opinions, who may not want to use this technology. And after the pandemic, I hope that we can learn that this duality need not be, and uh, maybe with the help of more responsible design practices and framing technologies, not only in the strictly technological dimension and not focusing only on individual users, would help us show this, you know, systematic properties of the technologies that we help to introduce that would fit within you know, the more collective values and the value of solidarity as well as one of the values that plays on the spectrum and definitely not only in relation to privacy and not in opposition to privacy. That's something how I would like to see solidarity develop in future after the pandemic. That's really nice. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking something similar that, yeah, 
I mean, solidarity is is much more than an individual act of identification with others or, or empathizing with others. Um, it's it's itself embedded in larger institutional, political, and technological structures. And if those structures are not inclusive, then your individual acts of solidarity are only going to go so far. And so hopefully, maybe, right, the, the, the takeaway of solidarity in a post-pandemic world is, yeah, that, that true solidarity requires tackling these larger structural technological systems within which we navigate our relationships with one another. And may I add something? Because it's actually something that I learned about solidarity from Jana's paper. Oh, how nice. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> here. Because basically, Jana, you were talking about this uh, divide, this loss of perceptual, I'm sorry, I forget the correct term, but of yeah. this... Um, the breakdown in world familiarity. Yeah, breakdown in perceptual world familiarity during the pandemic. And you end up, like, on the last section, on the more what seemed to me hopeful and optimistic note, as in, yes, it introduces all of these costs to us as individuals. We, we have this angst and we have to retrain ourselves and find what is important. And at the same time, I think fully in agreement with you that it introduces new opportunities, in this case, to think what we mean by solidarity, collectively and individually. Because for me, also, when... We definitely did have that breakdown with, you know, what we're used to and just these patterns that we navigate mindlessly. But at the same time, what was for me so remarkable, for instance, when I was walking by myself in the park in the city of Utrecht or along the canals, I noticed how clean the water in the canals was. And that was something that I kept seeing on the news popping up as well. And so, you know, that led to a lot of collective deliberations, at least on the social media and in the news, of how much we're polluting the environment that we live in, and look at how much just a few months of inactivity helped help give, give the environment a chance a little bit to restore itself. And that for me frames with solidarity. On the same way, we started to travel far less. We're flying far less. And I'm thinking of also why have we traveled so much before, you know? And, and again, this collective impact on the environment and then the climate change that I also helped to induce. And on a very completely different note, this work from home thing started, you know, to make me think how important the presence is five days a week in a traditional setting of an office. Perhaps it's a bit of a different solidarity, more with a, you know, cue to individual and also how we can be embedded um, in our, okay, scratch that. <laughs> I really, the work from home thing, <laughs> I would not mention because it doesn't link to the environment, but it, it, it is a true reflection. Like when I was reading Anna's paper this morning of these, you know, solidarity as in collective response to climate change and the changes to the environment that we help to produce and how giving that space and the distance from the routine that we were so embedded in gives us this fresh space in between, very much also in, in the terms of Merleau-Ponty, who Jana was quoting, this giving us space in between the pregnant emptiness to reevaluate what we mean by that and the role we can play in that. And I think that's also a really good opportunity that... Uh, we can have in terms of solidarity collectively in this Yes, side. I, I fully agree that there is this clear pregnant opportunity for reflection and reevaluation of our old habits. And at the same time, those old habits run deep. Um, and, and yeah, I think if there's going to be a sustained kind of reflection and, and transformation in, in how we do a lot of things in our world, it, it, 
it cannot fall back again to just individuals reflecting on their own situation. There, there, the, the, the changes have to also be somehow promoted through and ingrained in how we give shape to the world. So maybe that's a next, uh, that's a shared project, Olia. What I are... actually was thinking about that as <laughs> yeah. well when I was reading it, and I'm like, oh yeah, I know, yeah. I know how exactly to turn to here in phenomenology. So that would be really yeah. good. Great. Yeah. So the podcast um, spurs occasions for collaboration. Nice to hear. Yes. Okay, and uh, one more question. Uh, how do you think, how can philosophy contribute to societal debate about the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, Jana? So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's one way. Um, I do, I think the pandemic has revealed, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm biased in thinking this because I am a philosopher, but I, I do think the pandemic has really brought out the wide range of areas that philosophical reflection can contribute to. Um, maybe as, as a really general remark, you know, the pandemic you know, I'm, I'm sure many really smart people saw it coming ages ago, and I, I knew it was, it wasn't, you know, an event that came falling out of the sky. But, but at the same time, I feel like there were a lot of ad hoc reactions and measures that were implemented, and you know, philosophy as a more reflective activity encourages us to step back and ask, do we really endorse, you know, these values, uh, accept these assumptions, etc. So that's sort of I think a general reminder of the significance of, of philosophy in a time like this. And then of course, you know, I think we need, you know, philosophers of science and, and, and sociopolitical philosophy and ethics to, to help us think about, you know, how do we, how do we distill, you know, action guiding norms and measures from, you know, scientific data you know who, who do who, how do we get from the descriptive to the normative or um you know how, how how like as olia has you know really clearly tackled and discussed in her paper uh, how how do we bring the different values we hold dear in dialogue with one another how do we establish which ones are more important and why or is there even a, a dichotomy in the first place so um yeah i i i I, I think in, in, in various areas, the, right? I mean, the pandemic just affects so many areas of life too, that I think, um, yeah, we need philosophers of all, of all sorts to help us think through what's happening to us. Thank you. Olia, would you like to answer the same question? Well, it's difficult to add something after Jan already pointed all of this out. I fully agree. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like... But I guess I, I would like to single maybe one more thing in addition to everything that Yana was saying, and that's perhaps to continue these uh, collaborative educational efforts that we're having. And for instance, this approach that we have at the Faculty of Technology Policy and Management at uh, TU Delft, the Comprehensive Engineering Approach, that basically stands on the bedrock of technologies as these socio-technical systems and uh, trains and educates designers, developers, engineers from perspective of looking at technology, not just from technological component, but also considering the policy and institutional embedding and the social-cultural embedding and values that cut through all of them, basically. So it really also is from, you know, building that awareness very bottom up from, from the very beginning and, you know, bringing out... Um, 
engineers and developers into the world who are also endorsing that perspective of more systematic thinking on technology, which I think would help as well. Thank you. Thank you both so much for this philosophical dialogue on the ethical challenges of the corona pandemic. Um, yeah, thank you so much for, for, for having me. And I'm, I'm really grateful for invitation to be here today and just uh, to learn from, from both of you. And I can't wait what the listeners would uh, think about this podcast. To be continued. Yes, certainly. We would like to thank the 40U Ethics Consortium for sponsoring this podcast. To our listeners, thank you for your time and your attention. Stay tuned and follow this channel because more episodes will follow with exciting philosophical work on societal responses to the pandemic. Hear you soon.